When looking for the king of podcasts, you're at the wrong channel. Well, excuse me! Looking for good ideas for life? You're far from good hands. Hey, bud, what's your problem? If you think the listener is always right, you're far from the right place. Out of order! Even in the future, nothing works! Hosted by a Northeasterner by birth, but a rebel by choice. Are you threatening me? If you want a host that floats between love and madness, and we know the night is always gonna be here anyway. Thinking of you's working up my appetite, looking forward to a little afternoon delight. Then play on and listen to Crazy Train Radio. All right, guys, uh, listen to the blues riff and B. Watch me for the changes and try and keep up, okay? Hey there, Friday fans. We know how much you enjoy the movies. Enjoy grabbing your Friday merchandise and interacting with the Friday family, whether it be at conventions or during our particular watch-alongs. Well, when you're looking to get yourself masks, why not check out our friends over at Camp Blood Customs out of New York State and order your specific custom mask from any other films. All orders are made specifically. Your needs and wants are. Make sure you find Camp Blood Customs on Facebook, Instagram, and all over social media and order yours today. Hi, I'm Jonathan Schwartz. I write the Wrestler's Court column on SlamWrestling.net, and I'm a big fan of Crazy Train Radio. Hey folks, it's your least favorite host in the podcast world, Croc. Jonathan Steele. Boy, do we have a good one for you today. All right, everybody, we are back here on Crazy Train Radio. I wanted to uh, have a friend who's been my co-host for quite a few shows on sort of a sister show, uh, but that got all messed up last Sunday, so I wanted to have him on. He's uh, a slam columnist Jonathan Schwartz not to be confused with our Jonathan Steele they have the the same monogram towels and everything but um, uh, Jonathan's really dissecting uh, in this latest I don't know if it's dropped yet we'll ask him uh, the behind the scenes all of the stuff that happened in the AEW scrum and I should throw out there because Busted Open has been talking about that scrum but they've been mis- 
a little bit misinformed. They're basically copying what UFC has done. Like every single show I've ever gone to, any MMA show, there's always a media scrum. And that's been taken basically probably from boxing. And Japan does it for all of their shows, all of their wrestling shows when you're over there, whether it's all Japan women back in the day or now stardom or New Japan. There's always scrums. New Japan has them after every single match. So like if you're a journalist and a photographer, it's like you can only be in there for a short amount of time because you want to get back out and watch the show. So without further ado, of course, the boss, Jonathan Steele and Jonathan Schwartz here. Guys, um, let me also throw out very quickly, uh, paying tribute, respect to Ernie Shavers, who was a great 70s, early 80s boxer. He had matches, uh, one with Ali, I think two with Larry Holmes. But really funny guy. He's only 79. We lost him in the fighting sports world recently. So I will shut up. Jonathan, do you want to say anything before we go to our sort of our guest brother, Jonathan Schwartz? Well, when you were doing the introduction, the one thing I could think of, and we'll let it rest as it is, but I thought of Mel Brooks, Spaceballs, and made a Schwartz be with you. So, John, <laughs> welcome. Never underestimate the power of the Schwartz. It always is. <laughs> Delighted to be here. Thanks to everybody for having me. The great Bill Brooks. So uh, curious to know, because I'm coming in blind and this, but Mike kind of tipped me off to an article that you got coming out this week on Slam Wrestling. So what is that? Sure. So I write a column every two weeks for slamwrestling.net, Greg Oliver's site. Uh, my art, my most recent one actually just came out this past Sunday following the events of the last AEW pay-per-view all out. Uh, the card itself was tremendous. Um, an awful lot going on. New trios champions uh, crowned uh, an incredibly intense match for the AEW world championship between John Moxley and CM Punk, which had earlier uh basically changed hands to Moxley uh, following a pretty flash knockout kind of a match. Um, and then it, the title went back to Punk. And it seems like this is going to be very short-lived runs for both Punk and for the Young Bucks and Kenny Omega, who were crowned the trios champions. And the reason for this is following um, the Mox and Punk match. As Dr. Mike had mentioned at the top of the show, there was a uh, media scrum or a press conference and having seen it i'm still not sure exactly what happened um, punk decided apparently to go into business for himself without so much as being asked a question he kind of fixated on one journalist who was in the crowd and just went on an absolute tirade against aew with tony khan sitting right next to him against uh, his former best friend colt cabana um, over issues going back to a lawsuit that they had both been part of against WWE for remarks that Punk had made on Cabana's podcast, which in turn led to a lawsuit between the two former friends uh, over who should pay for the defense of that suit. Um, he went on against Adam Page, who earlier had kind of shot on Punk, apparently during uh the, the build-up to the feud between those two men and against the Young Bucks and Kenny Omega in their roles as executive vice presidents with uh, AEW. Um, it was, for somebody who's made a career off of controversial statements and off of um, shoot or work shoot promos, most notably the WWE pipe bomb he did back in about 2013, uh, this was something else. And so much to the extent that once the 
press conference was over Punko's backstage and supposedly either he goes to find the Bucks and Kenny Omega or they come to find him and as Barry Manilow once wrote in uh, the song Copacabana there were punches through when chairs were split in two there was one in a single promo but who shot who so that's kind of where we are today Um, in the wake of that it seems that Punk has injured himself and will be out six to eight months so he's been stripped of the title Um, Omega and the Bucks have also been stripped of their newly won trios title And basically, all of the men directly involved in the dispute, along with several other backstage personnel who tried to separate them allegedly, um, are all kind of sitting on the sidelines pending the results of an external investigation. But wait a minute. One of those guys is Chris Daniels, and he only tried to break it up. So why? Well, we don't know all of that. Why is he in any trouble? Why would they suspend a guy with the ethics and a guy that normally can cool heated things like this backstage. I've seen him do it at PWG and promotions around the U.S. Um, Not having any inside knowledge beyond what's become public record so far. My guess is that this is basically uh, Mr. Khan acting out of an abundance of caution. What What's clear on the face of it is that a whole bunch of wrestlers were in a room and notwithstanding the fact that uh, the violence is supposed supposed to be controlled and limited to what happens in the ring. Something happened backstage. And right now there's a whole process involved in terms of finding out exactly what that is and who should be held accountable for it. So you know what that reminds me of though, before I forget this thought is when Jim Ross got canned uh, after the Ric Flair, mm-hmm. remember that thing? Yes. And, and Jim Ross, you know, they felt oh, it was his job to have shut that down. So perhaps that it, it might be similar. It might not be. It, it could be, I tend to think that it's more just give everybody who may have been involved in a chance to cool their heels to get away from the situation, uh, see what the investigation ultimately finds, and take it from there. Um, I think from a governance perspective, AEW is in a little bit of an interesting position right now since um, Daniels is a vice president with the company. Uh, the Bucks and Omega have... Um, admittedly ambiguous executive vice president titles as well. So depending on how this shakes out, we not only have significant changes from a roster perspective coming up, certainly in the short term with Punk's injury and the need to crown a new champion and redraft storylines accordingly, but it could also affect the um, the leadership structure within AEW to the extent that Punk, sorry, that the Young Bucks and Omega were directly involved in that, which is kind of its own question if you look at how AEW is actually structured. And don't you think, and then I'll shut up and let uh, Jonathan Steele say some stuff. Uh, It almost sounds from what we're hearing is there was not a lot of governance associated with it. Those might have been like honorary titles for helping, you know, find Tony and involve him in the process and create AEW. Uh, you know, because they were calling themselves the elite in New Japan and blah, blah, blah. Prior to that, and I keep saying this, all or what all elite is on a national global level, basically it, it feels to me from somebody who's covered pro wrestling grow from day one, it, it, all the foundation is right there. Bucks, Omega, all of CM Punk, you know, quite a few of them. Uh, I mean, Daniels and Kazarian all came out of and worked extensively for Gorilla. The referees from Rick Knox to the female one, I always spaz on her name, even though she lives like in the Pacific Northwest, she was refing. Aubrey Edwards. Edwards. Yeah, Aubrey uh, Edwards. Oh, the Jonathans get it. 
well, she was repping like, you know, repeatedly, you know, the last couple of years, uh, all the Battle of Los Angeles tournaments, et cetera. I mean, Orange Cassidy, Meltzer and I saw him there the very, very first time. Nobody knew who the heck he was at all or that he'd had all that history in Chikara and, and stuff. But uh, I, I'm guessing, well, you know, uh, this might be the swan song. What a terrible way to go out if if punk, you know, has to be let go. And what a mess now, you know, before uh, or even with the Vince thing, you know, we're thinking, oh, WWE is the really unstable one of these two biggies. Now AEW is, is uh, claimed that role and we have some stability and some surprisingly good TV since Vince left and Hunter's taken over. But uh, Jonathan, still, what are your thoughts on that? Don't you, we've talked about that you and I too. It's weird now that AEW is so unstable. Plus you've got all these other talents, Thunder Rosa out injured and uh, the, the other female is going to be out uh, uh, nine months. The one that was doing the uh, galaxy space gimmick, very, very talented. Uh, you can Chris Statlander. Yeah, Chris, I, both of you, Jonathan's now like spaz, uh, you know, when you hit and go beyond the 65 year mark. But Jonathan, still, uh, let me throw to you since I've been monologuing it. Well, I would say overall, and I take it uh, with a grain of salt because we know everything we read on the internet is true. And I want to bring something else up with AEW in a second. But my thing is, and I don't run a multi-million dollar wrestling company or anything like that, but from what you hear, it seems like this is going to be these next couple weeks, couple months, whatever the case may be, between the injuries, what happened with the scrum, and current suspensions, however long they may go, and the investigation, it's going to be a true test for... Tony Khan and AEW because say what you want about Vince McMahon when he was running his ship, but I don't think things would have gotten this far when it comes to the media scrum and guys fighting and stuff or supposedly fighting in the background. Now, mind you, I also know Mike comes from the old school, uh, the territory days. And I've heard a couple of people comment on Punk in the Scrum, but it almost has a feeling of a Harley race. Hey, if you got an issue, come find me. Well, guess what? Supposedly they came and found you, and here we are. Yeah. What? Like but I it's said, like I, the inmates running the asylum in WCW. Tony's got a learning curve. You know, he never had any experience other than attending with his dad ECW shows and loving wrestling the, the way we like people doing it or seeing, you know, them come from that. Uh, and, and, you know, he had you know, a, a, a available funds to create, you know, the sickest, second biggest company in the U.S., etc. So it's going to be, like I said here, what is Tony going to do with this based on the investigation? And we're going to see how this... It's going to be put your big boy pants on and how are we going to move forward from this? So, because obviously yeah. I would, the, the other thing is too, Mike, I'm sorry, is what is Warner Brothers and everybody else, the people who distribute the show on TNT and TBS, that's got to play factor. I'm sure those phone calls have been made saying, hey, what right. in the hell is going on here? 
but go ahead. Because we were already worried what is going to happen with the uh, the AW Turner, whatever company Turner is, is part of a, a massive company now. It's not AOL anymore as a partner. Uh, but, you know, we were already worried, okay, when it comes to, you know, what could possibly happen uh, with this fledgling promotion. You know, you asked me about being from the territory days. I think Tony would need a shooter. Roy Shire had a legit hooker shooter, for example, in former world junior heavyweight champion, John Swensky, who promoted a few towns for him, did his program. But John was maybe not quite the level of a Billy Robinson, uh, Carl Gotch, Fez, Ganya, Bert Aceriti, you know, et cetera, Dr. Big Bill Miller. But he, you know, was there. So no funny business ever happened. You know, it happened once. Uh, with the great uh, Mephisto, Frankie Kane, doing a chic gimmick in 73. And Swinsky shut that down very quickly. So Tony needs somebody like that, like a Kurt Angle or somebody, and it, or Brock Lesnar. I don't think, we don't have the quality or caliber. Uh, so JS from Slam, our, let me ask you this. What, what hooker shooters do we have out there uh, other than, you know, say for women, Ronda Rousey, uh, or it really, you know, zillion MMA guys. I don't know. I guess one of the Diaz brothers or both of them could come to work as security, quote unquote, policeman for Tony Khan. But uh, uh, Jonathan Schwartz. What, what? Well, ironically, I think the best source of shooters in the wrestling world right now seems to have finished up his run with AEW and Dan Lambert and his team. There was a point where he was bringing over everybody from Andre Arlovsky. Yeah, I get the sense that that whole thing has run its course, which is a which is a shame. I think Lambert's the best heel manager I've seen since Paul Heyman, uh, certainly in recent years. Um, what I will say though is, I find with a lot of the coverage that the, that the incidents have been getting so far, I think there's two focuses that I just seem to be a little bit off the curve with. The first is an awful lot of attention is being paid to whether it was a work or a shoot from the get-go. I would argue that for the amount of attention that backstage stuff has now taken and the effects that it's had on the product itself, work or shoot, or whether it was something that was initially meant to be a work shoot, but where it didn't get back to the people who were offended or what have you, doesn't matter at this point. The fact is you've got executives putting their hands on employees or independent contractors. You've got independent contractors openly disparaging the company that they work for with the CEO and president right beside them. It's a mess. And I think it's the kind of thing that belies the stories that we try to tell when we're watching pro wrestling. The other thing is, I would argue strongly that, yes, there's a place for locker room leadership or shooters, um, especially on the independent scene or historically. But I got to tell you, this isn't uh, this isn't the St. Louis Wrestling Club. This isn't Vern Gagne. I was kidding around. That, okay, I no, but, say, but I, I think you raise a valid point. But the challenge here is that a lot of the people involved kind of take that mentality with them. And this is big business. Um, AEW is part of a massive privately held company. Tony Khan, pretty much every major hat in that organization, CEO, chair, um, chief Booker, producer, writer. Booker. Exactly. The, the buck stops, pardon the pun, slowly with Tony, solely with Tony Khan in a way, in a way that's reminiscent of, of the degree of control that Vince McMahon is supposed to have, have exercised during WWE's growth. Um, over on WWE's side, when we talk about the bad behavior that led to Vince McMahon 
leaving and other people within the organization. These aren't small, these aren't small mom and pop shops anymore. These are multi-million dollar entertainment conglomerates. And they're accountable in WWE's case to their shareholders, notwithstanding the fact that the McMahons happen to be a pretty big chunk of the shareholders. And they're accountable to various government agencies, not least of which including the SEC. In AEW's case, as uh, as Jonathan had mentioned, there's accountabilities to the networks that are that they're to build partnerships with. There's accountabilities to any number of sponsors, including DraftKings, whose advertisements are all over AEW programming. There's accountability to the broader corporate structure as well. If AEW is seen as an embarrassment to the Jacksonville Jaguars, you have to imagine that the NFL is going to come calling as well. And they're a tremendously powerful sports and entertainment organization, quite possibly the biggest in the U.S. So I would argue that the most effective shooter in those room is going to be the company's general counsel and the head of HR. Because in my view for what happened, even if it's a work that went too far, I think there's an argument to be made that the parties who so grossly overstepped their bounds really shouldn't be working there anymore if AEW is going to be taken seriously as a sports or entertainment property. And this kind of goes beyond me as a wrestling fan who absolutely loves CM Punk's work and has been a fan of the Bucks since for years now, and Kenny Omega as well. It's a bad look for wrestling. It's a very bad look for Tony Khan as an executive, unfortunately. And there aren't that many constructive ways of dealing with it, as, as would be my take. Let me say this. I apologize for not introducing you, too. You're an attorney, so you have you know, quite a not bit. Not a wrestling attorney. I'll leave that not to a wrestling. Not a wrestling. But let me ask the both of our Jonathan, if, uh, because uh, you and I, Jonathan Schwartz, have had this conversation on the other show about independent contractors. And Tony's such a terrific guy, you know, he always seems to lead with his heart and, uh, you know, no one wants to shit on him because look what he's done for, for us. He's created this amazing thing where, as I say, no matter what shows I might fast forward through, whether wrestling or otherwise, or, you know, when a baseball game gets a little, I, I do not do anything. I watch AEW in real time. There's no, and sometimes I rewind things to see, go, holy S you know, a holy S moment, rewind it a couple of times to, to watch it. But do we know, or do you know, either of you guys, uh, it, it sounds like from what you're saying though, he, the, the, the talent is under the same uh, independent contractorship termination or terminology as opposed to being employees or does Tony have something that's slightly different than WWE? Do you know at all, either of you guys? So to the best of my knowledge, uh, that was actually a conversation that happened when AEW was being founded. And the wrestlers who wound up taking executive positions actually pushed Tony to keep it on an independent contractor model. Uh, Cody Rhodes particularly was a pretty strong advocate of that, Um, mainly, as he said it, for historical reasons. I don't know if the specific contracts are any different from how WWEs are structured, with the exception that AEW seems to be much more receptive to their independent, independently contracted talent um, being able to work elsewhere. So you'll see, for example, uh, John Moxley has worked New Japan extensively even before there was a real formal arrangement between the companies in place. He's worked with Josh Barnett's Bloodsport 
and other indie promotions. He's done GCW. Um, And many of the talent, whether they have AEW merchandise, for example, or not, they've also got their own pro wrestling tea shops up. So there are, and I don't believe that uh, AEW's tried to exercise the same degree of control over outside um, ventures like Cameo or other kind of online streaming programs. They probably object if somebody wanted to open an OnlyFans account, um, but that would, again, be a different story. Plus, they uh, also are only, at this point now, they're just a TV, two shows weekly and pay-per-view quarterly. Uh, there's not house shows. Uh, Impact has house shows to a small extent. Most of them end up being on their streaming thing. And of course, WWE, besides their various shows, their three weekly shows, including NXT tonight, uh, they've got, uh, you know, X amount. Not not like it back in the day. Not like back in the 80s where there were like might be an A, B, and C house shows all occurring the same night. Uh, but they still have house shows and... Uh, so, well, yeah, that's an interesting uh, point with, with Cody. Let me throw this to you guys. Do you think if Cody was still there, this scrum, this mess would have happened? Or if it did, would it have been shut down far more quickly than it was? Because Cody was, in many ways, a you know, very corporate-aware, calming presence, most reported calming presence. Uh, do you think this, this kind of mess would have happened? Because... It's been a little chaotic since he left, sadly. I would assume, and we all know what they say about assuming, but as far as the EVP titles and such, what you hear is Cody took that role seriously. And I don't know if that had to do with growing up in a business and having a father be a part of the behind the scenes, whether it be as a booker or whatever the case is in Florida, WCW and whatnot. So he gets, well, I shouldn't say he gets, but Cody for being in his thirties, tried to learn All right, How do I deal with a TV company? How do I handle the booking? How do I, the different behind the scenes and business aspects of being an actual EVP? Because he also understood that he wasn't going to be in the ring forever. So I think there would have been that calming presence to say, hey, guys, and whatever. But who knows? But you, you bring up a good point. That that corrects my initial thought. Whereas the Bucks and Omega may be just EVPs in name. It might be, you know, in tribute. They might have some uh, stuff that they, they they do beyond being in ring, et cetera. They might be coaching stuff. But Cody, I think, particularly with Brandy, too, I mean, they were actually doing those functions as opposed to or more so than what we know about Omega and the Bucks. Uh, who I, you know, we're praying don't get canned. I mean, uh, Punk physically is damaged goods. It wouldn't be, you know, the worst thing for AEW if he did not come back. But all the other folks, and and maybe even Punk's guy, who I think is outright fired now, his trainer, his original. Uh, what's the guy's name? Ace Steel. Yes. Yeah. Um, sadly, after giving one of the, the great promos by a non wrestler for this year. 
We had another one by Kevin Steen last night that was off the charts to Austin Theory. But um, let me throw back to Jonathan Schwartz uh, before I maybe ask you guys before we end the uh, our Jonathan Schwartz show uh, about some you know thoughts on uh, Raw last night and uh, and in general with under Hunter's leadership. I think we're what are we about the seven week mark now since Vince has gone and Hunter something, something like, like that. I think. So I know people have been very quick to call it a very a fast turnaround. I think that it's going to be a bit more of an evolution, if you'll pardon a Triple H pun. I think that a lot of what we're seeing early on is very encouraging. I think the fact that we're getting to longer matches, that we're highlighting more actual wrestling of the show. Um, I think that some of the changes in language that I'm hearing as I'm watching are really encouraging. We're fans, again, we're not exclusively the WWE universe, which always struck me as a really silly thing to say. Uh, they regularly talk about being wrestlers and wrestling as opposed to sports entertainers are just kind of gliding by it. Um, when they're talking about championships and belts now, we're not just, again, kind of fudging language to address the concerns of one admittedly very important stakeholder. Um, I think that the best thing I saw last night was uh, that Johnny Gargano return match. Oh, I think they, I think that they couldn't have put him in against a better wrestler. I don't know. Well, other than the fact that they called him Shorty G, I don't know why Chad Gable hasn't gotten his due in WWE. The man is an absolute beast in the ring. Um, can do anything from power to technical wrestling. He can brawl effectively. He can fly. Guy can do it all and make anybody he's in with look like gold. The only criticism I would have of that match, and I say this knowing anybody who's ever been closer to a ring than I have, um, will probably disagree with me, is that Gable, um, is that Gargano almost gave Gable too much offense in the match. It looked like he was vulnerable, which may be part of how a Gargano match works too. I mean, Ricky Steamboat, every match he ever had, initial flurry of offense would get beat pillar to post for a few minutes before coming back and, and ultimately winning, um, even against the most enhancement of enhancement talent. Um, but Gargano looked like a million bucks. Gable also looked really strong despite taking the loss. Otis even looked good coming out of it. And I think that's a little bit more of a challenge. Um, I agree with you. You could give Kevin Owens the mic every night for 30 minutes and I'd be happy. I think he and Sami Zayn on the microphone are, are really stepping up and are be, both being given an opportunity to show what they can do as more kind of fully realized characters. Um, even for somebody who in Owens is going back to more of that kind of killer character, he's still working humor into his promos, which is something he's done very effectively since his days on the indie scene. So I think there's a lot to be happy with. I love the fact that the women are getting more airtime as well. Um, I think that can only be positive. And I think one thing that deserves mention too, is while we're pointing to Triple H and his role with creative, I think it's also worth noting that Stephanie McMahon is the co-CEO and chair of the company. She has a track record as the head writer of SmackDown previously. Um, she learned from a man who had his fingers in literally every pie in the company from a production standpoint, I find it very difficult to believe that when decisions are being made creatively about the direction for Raw and SmackDown and who gets featured and who gets what time, that it's not at least somewhat collaborative. And I think that one of the things that if we want to look for better representation with wrestling, it's important, as we've seen with 
over in AEW, unfortunately, on the other side, it's really important to set the tone at the top. And I think that we shouldn't give Stephanie short shrift in this either. No, no. I, let me say this. I didn't mean to. We had to shift over to WWE quite yet. If you have anything else you'd like to say about AEW. But uh, when you mentioned Gargano and, uh, and somebody like Chad, it's interesting because, of course, Chad, whose real name is Charles Edward Betts, a decorated amateur wrestler. And Otis, a lot of people don't know his real name. I had this prepared before we even started the show. Nikola Bergajevic is his real name. Won uh, the Nationals Pan American Games for his weight class, Greco-Roman junior titles. He actually uh, trained for the Olympics with Gable. Yes, it just didn't, didn't, go didn't way, make way. it to the actual, but he was an alternate at one point. I, I would just think that Gargano is, uh, if he had any whatsoever, would, would say, let me give this guy some on offense. He really deserves it. And so you have, I bring that up because Gable, with all his amateur credentials, but Gargano maybe doesn't have all of that, but uh, they just really mesh, you know, very well. I've heard a lot of people say that should have been the main event. Well, at least from a uh, watchability Matt chain you know you, you don't want to displace what they did to get over and now that that uh, group since edge left is back over you know a lot of people were writing it off but now with the addition of Dominic it was the best he's ever been certainly still way green but I love Rhea Ripley you know that whole thing people were clamoring for months and months ago she should be the one turning him into a man it's it's happened they seem to listen um, but yeah, let's give Steph some some credit. Hopefully, I mean, she. I wish she would have pushed for more of these Revolution Women's pay per views. I know the first one didn't do the numbers that they were hoping, but it was such a terrific event. You know, brought back the past, present, future. Had all of these elements. And what did you guys think of that all women's pay per view? Don't you wish there were were more you know attempts at it? Maybe not on. I don't know. I wish it was annual at the very least. But yeah. They haven't had any follow-up. And how many years ago was that thing? Four years? Something like that. Would you guys like to see, you know, more of that? I mean, we're, it depends on what's going on, obviously. And, it, you know, uh, it's weird, the booking of the women's tag championships. Uh, the uh, other ones, Aaliyah and, uh, well. Uh, Rachel right, Rodriguez. Yeah, it, it's hard for me because I'm still calling her Gonzalez. But, but you know, they had like a two-week run. What was that to give a little shine, perhaps, to to both? Aaliyah, who still a lot of folks don't know much about. They don't know. You know, she came into and didn't have a whole lot of work in uh, NXT, whereas uh, Rodriguez, you know, had tons and even uh, was tag team champions uh, with the one she was facing off with last night. I, that's kind of weird, putting the straps on them and then just taking them off. A lot of people thought that uh, Bailey's group should have won the won it initially. I don't know. What were your thoughts on that? That's kind of weird. And the match wasn't what I was hoping for last night, but you know they got the straps. So I suspect I could be wrong. Part of it could be an effort to get the belts off of Rodriguez because Braun Strowman, with whom she's involved in a personal relationship, is going to be working SmackDown. So I, I think that it might be an opportunity to kind of keep them on the road together as things go forward. Um, that said, I'm not bothered by it. I like the idea that um, first they've established a set of lineal champions and now we've got the strong heels in place and 
strong but vulnerable, which you have to kind of establish for a heel to really work. I mean, if you think about Ric Flair, Flair's one of the greatest of all time, but in every feud he ever had, didn't matter if it was Nikita Koloff or Ricky Morton or Sting or Lex Luger or Dusty Rhodes, he was always in peril of losing at any given moment. So you kind of establish that first, and then you can have uh, the heels have a good solid run with the bells. And that 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 brings us to uh, some points you and I have talked about even last night when I was saying, well, you know, all this talk of they should bring in a female element to the bloodline, and why not? Naomi, you know, married to Jimmy Uso, I believe it is. And I was saying, nobody's talking about Nia Jax, who is blood related via her uncle, or her dad was a nephew or cousin of Peter Mavia. So she is not just married the way Naomi, she's fully blood. I, I think that would be tremendous if you're going to stack the deck or maybe have some of the family come down with rock at Mania, if it's rock reigns. Uh, but you, of course, and I think most fans would love to see, uh, now that you have heel tag champs, uh, what are they called? They are called damage control, not fully spelled out, but when Naomi and uh, uh, Sasha come back, although Sasha is talking like she would like to do more modeling. She was... Um, she was just at New York Fashion Week, I think. Yeah. Well, wait, I thought they had New York Fashion Week, but that's the Met. That was like a couple of months or like two months ago. But New York Fashion Week is a little bit different. And yeah. she modeled, uh, I'm not sure which company or, you know, what line, uh, Versace or something like that. Do you know? Uh, well, let's see. Yeah. I know I, sh I saw her doing Rise. I, I don't know specifically beyond that, unfortunately. Well, at least I'm sure she did a better job than the male models thing, which I still hate. I just still think it's. I think that's on its way out. Yeah, I hope I, you Actually, know dogging it. I mean, you know, they need something better. Like Eli Drake, let the dude, whatever they're going to call him, L.A. Knight. Oh, we're heading there. I I don't know if you caught it, but on Friday's episode of SmackDown, um, after the models and Los Lotharios were beaten, they cut away backstage and. Uh, I'll call him L.A. Knight, uh, did a bit of a, a short promo talking about to get through the day, you have to go through the, you have to get to the night and uh, then gave uh, off one of his L.A. Knight catchphrases. So I, th I think we're about to see a transformation there. Because he was already doing the Max Dupree stuff when Vince was there, which, you know, if Pat Patterson was still alive, that Pat would have come up with that. That, that. that was just, you know, because Pat knew Vince's sense of humor, so he would you know, suggest a lot of these things over the decades. And, you know, that just has to go because the guy can talk and wrestle and he's getting older. He's not getting any younger. You know, he's not uh, a spring chicken like uh, uh, Ciampa or, uh, you know, Cesaro even. So, well, if they had to do something goofy with him. I just would have made him Elias's third brother. Yeah. Yeah. That's that whole thing has been dropped. There's no, uh, like he was destroyed by Kevin uh, Steen, Kevin Owens. So still call him Kevin Steen because of, uh, this guy, you talk about the promo skills. Let me just go off for a second. He he was the first guy I ever saw to do a, an entire wrestling match holding a, a microphone in his hand while he was destroying a guy in Pro Wrestling Guerrilla. I don't know how many years ago, maybe 2001, 2002, and uh, maybe a little bit later, 2003. But the, the guy has been entertaining for so, so long. And uh, 
So, so that would be funny. So anyway, to have him destroy, maybe that's how they got rid of Elias, who I don't care what they call him. The guy is, I don't think he's drawn any money for anybody. So maybe it's time to get rid of that stuff. You're absolutely right. And, and have, so he'll be uh, LA night and the whole shtick will be dropped. What'll happen with oh, the female? Who knows? I don't know if she's even learned to take a bump or anything. She's just been a, a valet. Well, I, I think they could continue to run the model stable just with her. I, th I think that that's. But he was like written out and she was replacing him. And then they all of a sudden brought him back, which was great to have him on TV. What was, what was that all about? Like he was off and she was going to be the one managing them. And, and then they bring him back and now he's going to maybe leave. As it, it hasn't elevated those two gentlemen, the so-called models uh, at all the way. Now you see Finn, uh, you know, all of that whole group last night. They were the guys standing over uh, Ray and, and Edge last night. And, uh, you know, where we thought that group might have been dead six weeks ago, five weeks ago, you know, now back in top. And I have to give uh, props to Dominic, the scenario with him and, and really because of Rhea as you know speaking in his ear and whispering all this stuff and having control you know he's that, really that. channeling his alternate universe dad they have him really leaning into the whole sleazy eddie guerrero kind of character i, I don't think he's anywhere near there yet either on on no, the mic or in the ring definitely not in the ring very few people ever get there but i i find myself really enjoying that gimmick one thing that i really like about judge day generally and a few other stables more recently as well is the fact that really for the first time since i mean you'd have to go back to the days of the dangerous alliance in early wcw that you would have male and female wrestlers in the same stable i think that it adds a whole other dimension um, opens up more feuds gives more people a chance to be relevant in storylines and you can cross pollinate that way because if if one of the key points of a stable is the ability to cheat and you have uh, a female member of a stable interfering in a match, you're still kind of butting up against the idea that a virtuous babyface isn't going to target a woman the same way they would target a man. And the cool thing... It, it, uh, it opens up a lot more right. avenues. And it keeps the talent on camera. Say if she's still yeah. legitimately injured, you know, unlike Bailey, where she wasn't seen at all for what, 14 months, uh, Rhea is on TV every single week, sometimes multiple segments, a raw show, even though she's still injured. And that's the way to do it. You, you don't want people to forget who these folks are if uh, they are, you know, like uh, uh, CM Punk was off TV. I'm sorry about that. CM Punk was off TV uh, that whole time. I mean, come on, let's show him at home or doing something. Have him cut a, a 10 second promo to keep him in fans' minds. And so I, I like that exactly what you're saying. I, I like that. And it certainly made sense. I'm reminded of the old superstar Billy Graham hip surgery vignettes. Mm -hmm. My favorite one being where he had a tarantula on his head. <laughs> uh, I have to call well, him up and see. I know he's had a lot of health scares, uh, like the guy whose babysat taking care of him with me at various times, Bill Anderson, who's uh, had all kinds of heart operations and stuff. And... Uh, so sending out love and best of health to both Billy Graham, superstar. You know, the funny thing about that, that Jerry Graham somehow was driving. He'd gotten fired in Detroit as a manager and he's driving back to LA and he stops off in Phoenix. I'll make this short. And that's where he discovered this bodybuilder who we, you know, thought he could turn into a wrestler. He brings him to LA in, in like late 69. Billy Graham had jet black hair and a mustache. 
and, and so, you know, they weren't related whatsoever. Jerry put the moniker on him. He did some TV matches. He was horrible. And then uh, I think Gene LeBeau was the one that suggested sending him up to Stu Hart, who got him all fixed up. And then he came back. But you know where the colors came from? The psychedelic the tie-dye and all of that stuff, the colorful Billy Graham was when Roy Shire was done with him in San Francisco, where he'd been tag champs with Pat Patterson, helped turn Pat face. They were a heel tag, US, uh, were the world tag team champions, at least in the Shire organization. But he was wearing like tan brown leather, uh, like a chap leather jacket with those fringe things hanging down. He came into LA, March of 72 with the tie dye. That's where it started. And he spent about four or five months with us feuding with Canada's John Tolis and Chris Tolis as baby faces, and then went to feud with Wahoo and the AWA, bringing the color there and all of that. So LA was where the Billy Graham, and a lot of folks don't know, I'm writing a piece on this, the blue WrestleMania two steel cage that you know Hogan and the Bundy were in, that was purchased in the sale. Uh, uh, Vince Jr. bought the LaBelle, my boss, the Mike LaBelle office in December of 82. And that was our Blassie steel cage. That's where they're blue. That sort of bright sky blue. Uh, all the boys hated it because it was very, very rigid. They, they kind of got hurt when they swam against it, but that was the Blassie cage from Los Angeles. You know, it was retired and the WWE's had many, many cages since, but uh, LA, that, that irked me. I bring this up because I'm on the mentality of Gene LaBelle, who was not in the end, uh, the memoriam thing of the TV US Emmys last night. A guy who has more IMDb credits for movies and, and TV, film and TV, than a lot of the folks that were honored. And they, they couldn't put him on the, uh, you know, the Emmy thing last night. Uh, they had, you know, that's when you're getting disrespected. Like, if, if uh, either one of you guys were watching it, they had like a couple of people or lessers, they clumped them into a group of like five or a group of three, whereas like the bigger names, Sidney Portier, of course, get not only one, you know, the image, the frame on themselves, but uh, like an audio uh, package on them, etc. So I, I'm, I'm thinking Los Angeles because Gene LaBelle, I'm pissed he didn't make that uh, Emmys in memoriam last night, which he really deserved. I don't know if you caught Ronda Rousey's tribute to him. No. So she's actually started wearing the pink gi. Yes. Yes. Whereas before but, she had kind of a, a Roddy Piper style leather jacket, but I think she's doing her best to keep him out there as well. Has she done like any kind of uh, video or TikTok talking about him or Instagram or whatever the kids are doing? Not that I've seen, but I know she was one of very many uh wrestlers and other entertainment people who uh when gene did pass um was pretty active on social media twitter that kind of thing uh talking about him and the impact that he had he's he'd known her since she was an infant yeah he'd actually he trained her her mom in judo i believe yeah he worked with his mother i'm going to be speaking it's a private not invited to the public sadly who really and it's inside of a dojo next month uh the Funeral itself was family only. And so those of us that work with him in the Los Angeles promotion or knew him since like the late 60s in my case, it, it really pained us not to be able to be there for Gene. Uh, I, I must have had on the show with Evan Ginsberg. Evan couldn't make it today. He was working. He, he teaches. He's got two jobs. So we were going to have Evan on uh, to make this a, uh, you know, four for some group family event today, because uh, I wanted to have uh, Jonathan 
Schwartz talk about his slam piece, et cetera. But uh, I'll give a full report of that. So that's like only is primarily and Rhonda's going to be there. There's like only two of us from pro wrestling being allowed there. Another photographer like myself who worked with Gene since the sixties, but uh, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about that. And, uh, but I, I would love to see like a big outdoor thing because you know, you get tons of the MMA people alone would pack whatever venue uh, they have. And then of course there'd be X amount of wrestling folks. So uh, judo Gene LaBelle, I mean, the guy finessed, Chris Adams, who talked about this when he, that was his, Chris Adams came to the U.S. specifically for Gene to finesse and send to New Japan. And then that's when word got to Fritz, who brought him into Dallas. So many others uh, from great Kojika in uh, 69, who then uh, Gene LaBelle sent to Funks, Funk Sr., specifically in Amarillo, and uh, and so many other guys. Choshu came in, Fujinami, and Gene worked with all of them. And then uh, Inoki sent Bad News Alan Collage from Canada and uh, uh, oh gosh, some other ones. And, and Gene finessed them and then sent them, you know, they had these New Japan careers, but first Inoki wanted them to spend a lot of time at, with Gene at his dojo in Los Angeles. Uh, so, you know, we're talking all through the 70s and then Chris Adams, 79, 80, who did spend, that was his very first US territory, similar to Al Hayes. Judo Al Hayes, his first place, he worked with Gene LaBelle as one of his first matches in Amarillo for Dory Funk Sr. So uh, lots of cool stuff. We're kind of wrapping uh, this, but let me see if either of you guys want to plug and say stuff. I'm going to shut up now and, and throw it to Jonathan Schwartz and Jonathan Steele. Well, I wanted to ask a final question, if I may, of Mr. Schwartz. And you mentioned it briefly with him having the legal background and stuff and a real career of sorts. What led you to writing for slam wrestling and writing for wrestling in general? So it was a couple of things. First, I've been a wrestling fan my whole life. Um, I've, some of my first memories are watching, I think it was a Rick Martelli WA match with, with my dad and it's just kind of been a lifelong thing for myself and frankly, for, for me and him, it's one of these, it's one of the things that's been a mutual in, interest for our whole life. And I just kind of got to a point where, you know, I have a, a family, I've got a real job, but my love of wrestling has kind of always been there and I enjoy talking about it. And I've often found for the amount that I, watch and the amount that I read, I just didn't really hear much that kind of spoke to me the way that I'm a fan. And I've always been the type who said, well, you know, if I see somebody else doing something and I think that I can do at least as well, I might as well give it a shot. So I, out of nowhere, just kind of pitched a column to, uh, to Greg a few months ago. And then the ideas just kind of kept flowing and I've been doing it every two weeks since. Um, I will give credit, Evan Ginsberg actually was one of the people who inspired me to start writing as well. Um, he's had a long career, either not necessarily directly in the business, but certainly involved with it. And wonderful guy to talk to. One of those people who you can disagree with and, and do so respectfully and actually learn from each other in the course of a conversation, which is really kind of what I'm always after. And I figured if I had an opportunity to share my thoughts with any kind of audience, 
Um, I write it even if nobody was, was um, reading, but I'm certainly glad that people are. And really the way that I do it, it's a chance for me to write about wrestling the way that I would if I were having a conversation with my dad. Any column that I write is basically me imagining that and kind of going back and forth and trying to flesh out the issues and to look at, yes, wrestling is what I'm talking about, but it's how it's connected to any number of other things where it draws its influences from, whether it's in literature or politics or whatever else is going on in the world. To me, that's the kind of stuff that I find interesting. Um, I fully respect that different people can be fans of something in very different ways, and I'm intrigued by all of it. I should give you some props, too. You had a genius idea in an email to me. This is credit you. You'd like to see a feud between the Bloodline and the Gorillas of Destiny, Hekaleo, Bad Luck Folly. I would throw in Papa Haku Ming in there. Mm -hmm. Uh, sort of like Samoans for, and you know what? They all claim to be related anyway, because when uh, Haku and Barbarian got inducted at the Cauliflower Alley, you know, uh, Ada uh, Maivia Johnson was talking about the, you know, the various distant relations between them. They even claim some kind of, I don't know if it's honorary, but they like, they do claim a familiar relationship with Jimmy Snuka, who is Fijian. Mm -hmm. But he started in Hawaii not that long after P Peter Mavia, I think, started. The first promotion he worked for was uh, 50th State Big Time Wrestling, Ed Francis, Lord Blears, which is the problem with me and this upcoming uh, uh, Vice Network. And a lot of people don't know. I, I uh, reported it last Friday, the New York Times Standard article, Vice Network is being, uh, they have not performed financially and they are entertaining the idea of being bought by a Saudi firm who would eliminate a lot of their content, but, but the Vice Network Territories thing, which Wayne Johnson, Brian Gewertz, who we had on the show about two, two and a half weeks ago, um, they are only covering Dwayne's grandma, Liam Avia's small promotion. It only ran for a couple of years. A lot of people were stiffed, whereas the classic 50s, 60s, 70s, almost to 1980, Ed Francis promotion was the big stellar one, the one that had on top uh, Sheik against Terry Funk in a Texas death match, double juice, a battle royal. This is 72. Battle royal where Andre and uh, Giant Baba were in the ring for the very first time. First time they ever met, even laid hands on each other. Bruno's in the back. San Martino was only on his way to Japan. He wasn't booked on the card, but he still showed up. Uh, Stevens and Bakwa defending their AWA tag straps against then Tri-WF world champ Pedro Morales, who brought the belt into the ring. And he was paired with Boba Brazil. The opening match was Mil Moscas against Maurice Vachon. That so would have been a clash of styles. That, definitely. Lonnie Main was on the card against Pampero Furpo. Lots of, so it's like everybody that was on the planet, Mega, Dory Jr. was on the card. You know, so that is what I consider to be the true Hawaiian promotion. And so one of those one-hour uh, vice uh, whatever it's called on the territories. You know, they're doing one on obviously Memphis that should be excellent. One on Florida, obviously try WF, uh, Bruno Vince senior, but I don't know, you know, they, they should be doing Montreal, the territory war, uh, Toronto with Tunney, uh, Detroit Sheik versus Dick the Bruiser. That was an amazing territory war in the early seventies. I think at some point Toronto could happen for a couple of reasons. First, um, the Rockstad has a substantial connection here. And secondly, um, I could be wrong, but I believe at least some of Vice's ownership is Canadian. 
Oh yeah. Yeah. It's based in Canada. So I, I know we had our own vice network for a while. That's yeah. long gone, but they, an awful lot of their content was, was produced and based here. Mind you, a lot of U.S. stuff is based here too, because um, all my checks we're generous with the with the tax incentives here. Yeah, with the dark side, all my checks for supplying photos for seasons one and season two came from Canada. I love Vice. I love all the things that they do. So I hope they don't go away. I hope there's a you know another season of Dark Side, even though it's kind of getting depressing. And the weird thing is that Jason and Evan were the producers on all of these knockoff Dark Sides: Dark Side of uh, pro football, Dark Side of comedy. You see them in the credits. And those things, the ones at least on comedy, are incredibly depressing. It's like uh, Owen and Benoit, but and Pellman, but nothing but that stuff where guys are dying. You know, it's just really, really sad. It's very hard. But I, you know, I had photos I sent in for the Andrew Dace Clay one, uh, but the Artie Lang one, etc. So I hope they continue. I hope they do bigger and better. I hope this thing does great ratings. And that all of the territories, all of those amazing territories, and you have to include all Japan. The, the first Japanese territory was really the IWE before, well, it was Ricky Dozans, but the IWE was around, and that was AWA affiliated. That's where Shozo Strong, Kobayashi, Thunder Sugiyami, all of these guys came from, and, they, and Kusatsu, they all ended up being absorbed by all the new Japan that came way later. But I hope all of the territories eventually, you know, that they're just ratings. I don't know. We'll have, that's a, for another show as to whether either of our Jonathans think a, a, a multi-part documentary series for weeks on end on the territories is going to draw. I hope it'll draw more than history fans. I hope today's like educated AEW fans will say, gee, I want to immerse myself in this. I hope. What do you guys think before we uh, go and, and throw to Jonathan Steele? Well, I just want to mention again for thank you to Jonathan Schwartz. And if you want to check out his articles, feel free to check them out at slamwrestling.net, which is Greg Oliver's site. He comes up with new articles every two weeks, as mentioned. Anything else we need to mention, uh, John? So uh, there is the column. I also recently, I don't know if anybody, well, coming out, um, I have a book review of a book that Keith Elliott Greenberg recently wrote called Follow the Buzzards, um, looking at wrestling in the age of COVID. Um, I personally found it a really fascinating read just because as far as I'm concerned, we're still kind of in COVID. But seeing how, but one thing he did really well, I thought, and it's absolutely worth a read, is uh, toggling back and forth between the wrestling world and the world outside wrestling and the parallels that you see there. The other thing that I'm going to take the liberty of, even though it's not my work, but there was a really, really fascinating article on the slimewrestlingnet.net website um, that Evan is interviewed pretty extensively in. It's called Unraveling the Myths of Gordon Scazzari. Uh, Mr. Scazzari was a uh, uh, would-be promoter in the New York area back in the early 1990s and dealt with any number of really challenging personal setbacks and found his way into wrestling or as well just as a cautionary tale, if nothing else. Um, Evan speaks very highly of Mr. Scazzari. He talks about his own relationship with him and um, really what his place in wrestling history is as well and it's just a very 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 well-written piece that um if you have a few minutes i think it's definitely worth everybody's time 
let me let me say something because I was interviewed by Jonathan before and recommended Evan, and then I asked to have my stuff pulled because I kind of went. I didn't even know when the tape machine was on, and I could have gotten sued for some of the stuff I had said. So all of the photos in there are mine. I was there. Okay. Uh, Gordon brought me out to manage Sheik and Sabu, but to do a, a number of other things. So. Uh, some of the things uh, we didn't even get into, and there were some errors in there, like Angelo Poffo did not leave. He and I did some ring announcing at the TV. Uh, the whole thing with Eddie Gilbert, I can't really get into, but I was the one that put the phone. And then we learned that Eddie, who was the problem with Gordon and e Evan Ginsburg, the last few years of his life, took great care of uh, Gordon. Gordon had told me, but that wasn't quite true, that his parents died in a car crash. They, at least according to the author, died of cancer. But he told myself and others that they had recently died, left them 165,000. Uh, and they, they had both died in this car accident. And no amount of, like Evan and I knew him, Evan more so, and we kept saying, you know, Gordon Scazzari was three months away from getting his law degree, speaking of law degrees. And we said, the wrestling will wait. Why don't you, you know, put, you know, push it down because everything he touched, it was like the reverse Midas touch. You know, he has the house show in Asbury park, Jersey snowstorm. The roads were iced. It hardly drew. Uh, and then two days later, you know, equally bad road conditions to where some of us destroyed the rental cars trying to get from Asbury Park to near Boston at Lowell Mass at a Vince Senior venue where the TV was shot. But uh, Gordon would, like, for example, Sabu, who had only been in the business, you know, Memphis and some Joel Goodhart shows, goes, what's the most you've ever been paid? And Sabu, the most you've ever been paid was like 75, 80 bucks U.S., and he said, 150. And Gordon goes, well, you're worth more than that. I'm going to pay you 300. He ended up paying a lot of the guys in full in advance. And so a lot of talent didn't show. Eddie Gilbert personally dragged myself and one other guy who writes for Slam, longtime photographer, brother photography, pulled us aside a couple of months later and said why he did not show. I can't really get into that. But he didn't show. He got paid in full like so many other talents. And uh, that's when we had to scramble. I got the phone call that Eddie wasn't coming. He faxed in booking sheets, which were indecipherable. And because so many guys didn't show and Gordon scrambled, was able to get guys last minute, like Bob Wharton Jr. and uh, Barry Horowitz last minute to fill in for the people that kept the money but didn't show. Uh, so Dutch Mantel, the end guys who really did all the booking, I was in the room. Dutch Mantel, Sheik, he brought Sabu in, who didn't say anything, Pez Watley, and then myself, and I suggested what ended up being the first uh, Chris Candido Sabu match. I go, you got these two incredible junior heavies, and it wasn't a violent match or anything. It was Matt and Chain and all the stuff if you watch it. So it was an excellent junior heavy before the FMW Sabu emerged. But Gordon was a sweet guy, but he blew all of his money. And then some, He uh, after the TV tapings, which were fiasco, was all done. It never got picked up. He was passed out at the bar. And three wrestlers who I had mentioned to the author, but now that's when I said, can you just pull any of my quotes? Because I didn't want to get sued, but they pilfered his wallet and took the final amount of money out of there. So he ended up penniless in a Fleabag New York apartment. A lot of this isn't in there. And uh, with about 19 cats. So the place smelled horrifically. Evan was bringing him food, taking care of him like the last three months of his life. You know, Gordon had a kidney liver condition even during the 1992 tapings. 
uh, all of that stuff. So there's one house show, big fiasco. The Sheik was not allowed to wrestle because the New Jersey Commission were there. They said, you know, his blood pressure was out of control and they cited his age. So they disallowed him from wrestling. He was supposed to wrestle. But uh, the show was good. I mean, the, the house show was good, but the TV tapings just utter fiasco. But there was a lot of folks that just showed up and came in. Keller Kowalski came in. So I was posing in with the Sheik and Jim Cornette, who was running the locker room. Uh, but for example, Nikita Kola, this before he was found himself born again, and I can say this, but he knew about uh, nine to 12 days prior to coming that he couldn't wrestle. He had way more than a hernia. He had uh, some break, uh, uh, wrist or ankle break that he was citing. So he couldn't wrestle in the championship match, the biggest match that was advertised, him against uh, Paul Orndorff, which was to determine the championship. So he, of course, takes the money. He got paid 100% in full, way more than he ever made uh, for doing any non-NWA, WCW things, and uh, shows up and then says, well, I can't wrestle. I can't do any of this. I can cut a promo. So he only cut one promo, not several that was in the article, but that's, and these are all minor things. So it's not, the article is great. Uh, and, uh, but, you know, being there fully backstage for all of this stuff, because I had to drive Sheik Sabu and the Puerto Rican talent, TNT and Hercules Ayala from the house show in Asbury to Massachusetts right after the show was over. So pitch black, black ice, snow, freezing rain, you know, I was the only guy that didn't destroy the rental car, but, uh, so Nikita Koloff only cut one promo with Chris Cruz in the middle of the ring and uh, Orndorff on the other side saying he couldn't wrestle. So it was a complete waste of him coming and wasting all of Gordon's money, but that wasn't the only person that did that. But, uh, and so uh, Stan Lane then took his place and then Orndorff went over and that was the one and only champion, but not even Orndorff gave his belt back. He took it with him. Sort of like a Dick the Bruiser in 1963, Los Angeles took the belt and never gave it back, citing some something or other. Um, there, there was a you, that brings us back to the start of the show. There needs to be policemen at these things, wrestler policemen, to make sure the belts stay with the promotion; they don't walk off. Um, I was just going to say that the the one part of the article that I actually inspired me to do a little bit more digging and I'll try to get an answer is that Orndorff claimed that he needed the belt to do a video game commercial shoot with Hulk Hogan. And I know from, um, that's not true. You know what? I think it might be possible. Really? Okay. Um, on, I'm going to do a little bit of digging. You, on can't this take, you can't hijack the belt and just say, you shouldn't hijack the belt. I'm not defending what, what Orndorff no. did, but I will say that around in the early 1990s, Hogan and a couple of his cronies like Orndorff, Honky Tonk Man, um, I think the Nasty Boys were involved in this too, worked a bootleg video game. There was an infomercial for it. And I think that it may that this may actually be the prop belt that was used. It's in, um, if you've ever seen the WrestleCrap website, there's a whole article about it. And it just struck me because the timing seems like it could line up and I, I wanted to look into that a bit. It was November, December, 92. Which would coincide with Hogan being done with WWE and before he really caught on with WCW, I think. Yeah. way Like, like that interregnum. W, but uh, it's an excellent article. I'm not dogging it, but I was there. I saw all of the stuff and obviously I couldn't have that input because the stuff, uh, 
I know so much dirt that happened there, but the ultimate thing was this poor kid went through yeah. a lot of money, whether it came from the inheritance trust that he claimed to us or because he didn't have any money and he was sickly ailing. He was still a student. So I tend to believe it was, you know, he was, he would always deny all this stuff. Evan and I would have him on the show all the time and he would just get all upset that I was telling truth, you know, these truths. Uh, because he wanted to appear, you know, like that he wasn't a victim, which he was. It just, it was very sad. He was a nice kid, should have gotten his law degree, should have, you know, waited like Evan and I told him a zillion times, you know, wait, don't blow all your money on this wrestling thing. Just wait. The wrestling will always be there, but, you know, you got to finish your degree. And he didn't finish the degree. And uh, that just pained me. He had nothing to fall back on. And the life just spiraled and, you know, he died young. It was very, very sad. But, well, anyway, guys, i sorry I went off. I went longer than I thought we should. Read, obviously, Jonathan Schwartz on Slam every week and definitely read the Gordon Cesari thing. I was looking for more uh, photos, but I'm happy Greg did a good placement job with my shots in there. And, of course, the author did a great job. So Slam, I think. I'll, I'll end with this. I and this is probably for another show. It could be a whole hour of us discussing what are the the world's best or biggest or most important wrestling websites. And I I still think Slam is the biggest. It has been around the longest. If you want quality uh, reporting on on any event or you know, I think Slam is the place to go. I think on a global level, uh, Greg Oliver and Slam. That's the number one site. I don't think I'd have too many people arguing it. Yeah, there's a lot of sheetsters and there's Observer and Torch and uh, Pro Wrestling Insider, uh, Dave and uh, Mike uh, Johnson and stuff. But I think, I don't know, nobody has to agree with me because it might look like a conflict of interest. But I think hopefully most people would agree. Slam's a place to go. When something happens, you want to go there. And when an obituary, when somebody dies, you're going to get the most definitive best obituaries at Slam too, which is very important for for the, the industry as a whole. Jonathan Schwartz, SlamWrestling.net. Thank you, sir. And may the Schwartz be with you. And may the Schwartz be with you. Thank you for having me. Wow! Thinking your day is bad and really looking to make it worse? Why not try downloading this new classic set of music that will be dropping so far off the charts there's bound to be injuries. <laughs> Now that's what I call depressing, is gonna make those who are even close to having the slightest glimmer of hope wanna jump off the highest of planks. For those that are getting, now that's what I call depressing, you'll be getting that song that reminds you of that relationship with those cougars, wrinkled ladies. For those who weren't really into cougars, but those who had that special friend while in Cell Block 2B, we got for you this clusterfuck that will put you in therapy for years to come. With cheeks wide open.
fuck writes this shit? Oh hell, we're still recording this commercial. Always with you, it cannot be done. Those that rather have it out than in. This loaded hit will be dropping soon. Farthing in the USA. For those who place their order by calling or ordering online, the next hundred folks will receive their choice of either a noose of good quality that won't snap, an installation of a new outlet next to your bathtub so you can now blow dry your hair in a full tub. Or the choice of the right gang to just beat the fuck out of you. Call us today at 1-800-FUCK-THIS. Crazy Train Radio, and don't ever forget, I love you.